The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5 on page 969 of the Bibles. And starts at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, about 10 days ago, as is quite a common occurrence, the General Synod got itself quite a bit of airtime on the national media in one form or another. Uh, unusually, because um, a report that um, it would be normal for it to be taken note of was not taken note of. Taking note is just a very polite way in kind of such legislative bodies. Um, as just accepting that it's been written. It doesn't commit the synod to anything that's in the report. It's a starting point. It enables those who are on the business committee to discover what the views of different synod members are. And having identified that and those people, it's able to then begin to kind of frame some legislation and to select people who form what are called steering committees who are in favour of something and revision committees which are sort of checks and balances on it, should the matter progress. Well, as you may or may not know, the revisionist or the liberal members of the Synod, those who want to revise what God has revealed, knowing that they probably wouldn't command the majority of General Synod members to refuse to take note, um, asked for a vote by houses, which is quite an easy procedure to achieve. As you know, in Parliament, there are two houses, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Well, in the General Synod, which is the third legislative body in England, there are three houses, bishops, clergy and laity. Chris Fry, one of our members, is a member of the House of Laity. And a vote to be won has to be carried in each of those three houses, but it was lost by half a dozen votes in the House of Clergy. However, if you totted up the votes of members, you discovered that 10 times that number, 60 or so, how a majority had voted in favour of it. Now, what it tells the revisionist bishops, if they didn't already know, which they did, and there are probably, out of the 43 diocesan bishops, 30 of them would definitely be revisionist. That leaves 13 who might possibly be orthodox on this particular issue. What it lets them know is that the Synod would not be in a position to change any doctrine or canons of the Church of England 
on that particular issue because you need a two-thirds majority in each house to change such things and the House of Laity would not deliver up a two-thirds majority. And hence, in their report, the bishops didn't support any such change in the doctrine or canons of the Church of England. To try to would only have led to their disappointment. And as the Bishop of Manchester, who's a leading revisionist, conceded on Radio 4. So all they could offer their fellow revisionists was, quote, maximum flexibility within the law, which is code for do what you want quietly, but not officially, build up effectively a critical mass, don't exercise any discipline on clergy who break the church's rules and enter into, for example, same-sex marriage, as half a dozen of them so far have. Encouragement is therefore given to accept innovation in practice. But the revisionist members of the Synod, both clergy and laity, were annoyed that the report hadn't given them more now, and hence they voted against it. The Archbishop of Canterbury was quite obviously annoyed. He shot off a hasty letter the next morning calling for radical inclusion, which tells you where he personally wants to go, in case you hadn't guessed it. He was miffed that the revisionists had not appreciated that he was doing all that he could for them and he was frustrated to have it confirmed that he was not going to be able to change any legislation to accommodate same-sex marriage in church law at least until 2021 after the next elections to General Synod. So what's going on? How does the church... And how do individual Christians decide on issues such as this one or many others? Well, essentially, one side follows scripture and tradition. Tradition is just the views of Christians which have the consensus has held for the last 2,000 years. Um, and on the other side, there are those who think that you should um, accommodate the prevailing views of contemporary opinion formers today. So you modify, you revise in other words. Yeah, one side believes in a revealed religion and the other side believes in a revised religion, albeit a revision of what's been revealed. So we need to ask, in order to decide which side we're on, what would Jesus say? After all, if we claim to follow Christ, it is his view that counts. And it's to his view and his way of discovering it to which a Christian is bound. So, page 969 and the outline on the little insert. And the key to this is what is Jesus' relationship to Scripture? We need to see what his is, verses 17 and 18, and then see what ours should be which is uh, 19 and 20. Now, people were obviously struck when Jesus appeared on the public uh, scene by the way he taught with authority. What is this, they asked? A new teaching? In particular, they asked, what was the relationship between his authority and the authority of Moses' law and the record of the prophet's teaching? To this question, whether it was spoken directly to him or whether it was unspoken, 
Jesus gave a definitive answer. He says he's come not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. That is to bring it to completion, to obey it, and to supply its true meaning. To complete it simply means the further implementation of God's grand plan of salvation. So when Jesus, for instance, makes the perfect sacrifice for sins on the cross, all the sacrificial ritual of the Old Testament that had been a great visual aid for them and also for us to understand what's going on in the cross, how God is able to forgive us. Whilst that needs to be retained so that we can understand the atonement, we no longer need to implement that because it's all been fulfilled and completed by the one perfect sacrifice of Christ. To obey it, we'll, we'll see how Jesus does exactly that later. And to supply its true meaning, similarly, we'll have an example coming up in a moment. For Jesus, the Old Testament has permanent validity. And in consequence, greatness in the kingdom of God would be measured by obedience to the law. Jesus continued, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. Now on hearing this, the disciples would have been absolutely gobsmacked, for the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people on earth. They'd calculated that the Old Testament contained 248 commandments and 365 permissions, and they claimed they'd kept them all. So how could the disciples of Jesus be more righteous than the most righteous people on the planet? Well, it's not too difficult to discern, is it? Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper. It is a righteousness of the heart, an inward righteousness of mind and motive, made possible by the regenerating and transforming work of Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, working through the believer's new nature, as the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel over 500 years before predicted about the blessings of the messianic age when it arrived. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the people. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And how will he do that? Well, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God's two promises to put his law within us and to put his spirit within us coincide. It's not a case of receiving the spirit and so dispensing with the law, as some professing Christians in effect do. But what the spirit does is engrave God's law in believers. We think it, we obey it, and we feel it when we see some great injustice caused by disobedience. The whole of our being, intellectual, volitional, and emotional, our minds, our consciences, and our hearts are all engaged. Well, the rest of Matthew chapter 5, which we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, contains six parallel paragraphs, each of which contains a so-called antithesis introduced by the formula 
You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Well, with whom is Jesus contrasting himself? Many commentators have maintained that Jesus is setting himself against Moses, but this is definitely not so, for at least three reasons through which we discover Jesus' attitude to the scriptures. The first is the formula that Jesus used when quoting scripture was, it is written, whereas the formula it was said is used to introduce an oral tradition, not the written scripture. Written scripture is the Old Testament. The oral tradition were, was, in fact, the traditions of men, as Jesus called them, collected over centuries by the scribes and the teachers of the law and written down after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem of 70 AD. They were, in effect, a commentary on the scriptures. But as we'll see, the scribes' interpretation of the law too often distorted scripture and enabled them to severely limit their obedience of it. It often enabled them to get out of what was intended. Corban is an example in Mark 7. The fifth commandment, as you know, is honour your father and your mother. But with no social security system and no adult social services, children were obliged to take care of their elderly parents. This, of course, had a cost. Now, the scribes wanted to honour, but not to pay. So they invented Corban. What they did was you ring fence and you earmark some of your wealth as a future gift to support the temple. It was therefore, sadly, not available to assist your poor, needy parents. And it was designated as Corban. Now, of course, at a later date, and after your parents' demise would be a very convenient time, you could change your mind and remove the designation of that part of your wealth, the temple. It was yours again. You can spend it as you want. Very clever, very legal, but deceitful. Jesus' interpretation gets to the heart of the text. And he quotes Isaiah, writing 700 years before, who said, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and you are holding on to human traditions. Hearts far from me, and their commentary on scripture, merely human rules. Well, that's Jesus' commentary on them. The second reason why Jesus must be affirming the permanence and the authority of the Old Testament is the immediate context that you've got here. Jesus has just affirmed in unequivocal terms the lasting authority of Scripture. It's inconceivable that he would immediately after contradict Scripture and so have contradicted himself. So he affirms it, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. See, he endorses the authority of Scripture and he gave it its true meaning. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, if you're kind of my age, you can remember the authorised version of the Bible where it talks about not a jot or a tittle for what the NIV translates, smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. But of course, I don't suppose any of us, me included, are familiar with the Hebrew language. So you'll need the outline to grasp this. Jot and tittles have to do with letters and pen strokes in Hebrew writing. A jot is the ninth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it is the smallest one. It was written above the line, and it looks to us rather like an apostrophe. A tittle is even smaller than a jot. A tittle is a letter extension, a pen stroke, that can differentiate one Hebrew letter from another. And you can see here an example uh, between the Hebrew letters Resh and Dalet. The Resh on the left is made of one smooth stroke. The Dalet on the right is made with two strokes of the pen. The letters are very similar to each other, but the distinguishing mark of the Dalet is the small extension of the roof of the letter, which is circled. And that extension is a tittle, the smallest stroke of a pen. When Jesus said, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, he was stating emphatically that God's word is true and trustworthy. God has spoken, his words have been written down accurately, and what God has said will surely come to pass. Fulfillment is inevitable. Even the smallest letter of the law will be fulfilled. Even the smallest pen stroke of the prophets will be accomplished. And then thirdly, there is uh, Christ's view of the Old Testament to consider. I don't think that any kind of neutral person reading the Gospels could come away with anything other than a realisation that for Christ, he revered the Old Testament scriptures and he submitted to their authority himself. It just takes three examples to demonstrate this. He submitted to the Old Testament in his personal conduct. So when he was in the desert, when he was tempted by the devil, each time he matched the temptation with an appropriate biblical quotation. He wasn't quoting scripture to the devil, he was quoting scripture to himself with the devil listening on. He was countering what the devil's words wanted him to do with what God's word wanted him to do. So when the devil offered him all the kingdoms of the world, if he would fall down and worship him, Jesus replied, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4.10 For Jesus, these simple words, It stands written, were enough for him. There was no need to question them, 
There was no need to discuss them with the devil. There was no need to argue or to negotiate with the devil. The matter, as far as Christ was concerned, was settled by Scripture. It was a voluntary, personal submission of God's Son to the authority of God's Word. And it's extremely significant. Secondly, Jesus submitted to the Old Testament in the fulfilment of his mission. He seems to have come to an understanding of his messianic role by a study of the scriptures. He knew himself to be both Isaiah's suffering servant and Daniel's son of man. So he accepted that he could enter into his glory only by the road of suffering and death. And this explains a sense of necessity, a sense of compulsion, which constrained him in the Gospels. Three times, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He uses the word must because Scripture says so. It is necessary. He voluntarily and deliberately put himself under Scripture's authority. He was determined to fulfill what stood written in his mission. So when Peter tried to prevent Christ's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told him, put away your sword. He had no need of human defence. He could have just conjured up a legion of angels to defend him, but he didn't. And the reason he gave was this. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Matthew 26, 54. He was of the same opinion after the resurrection and confirmed it both to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road and to the wider group of followers. He said to the two on the road to Emmaus, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And to those uh, extended group, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, Luke 24. And thirdly, Jesus submitted to the Old Testament in his controversies. He often found himself engaged in continuous debate with the religious leaders of his day. And whenever there was a difference of opinion between them, he regarded scripture as the final court of appeal. What is written in the law, he would ask. How do you read it? Luke 10, 26. Haven't you read this scripture, Mark 12, 10? One of his chief criticisms of his contemporaries concerned their disrespect for scripture. The Pharisees added to it and the Sadducees subtracted from it and in effect both distorted it. So to the Pharisees over that Corban issue, he says, you've a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And to the Sadducees who denied the supernatural, 
He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So it's beyond question then that Jesus himself was personally submissive to scripture in his own ethical standards, in his understanding of his mission and in his debate with Jewish leaders. What scripture said was decisive for him. Scripture cannot be broken, he affirmed, and there's no example of Christ contradicting the divine origin of Old Testament scripture. Yeah, some people do think that he has supposedly done so in the Sermon of the Mount when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. However, as we've seen, it was not Moses with whom he was at odds, but the scribal perversions of Moses. Not scripture, what was written, but the oral tradition, what was said. All the available evidence confirms that Jesus assented in his mind and submitted in his life to the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. So surely it's inconceivable if somebody claims to follow Christ that they should have a lower view of scripture than he does. Sadly though, many do. And to them, or to us, he gives a warning in verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Sets aside and teaches others accordingly. The world might love us if we baptised some of their erroneous thoughts and practices. But God will love us if we side with him. In fact, we risk exclusion from the kingdom of heaven, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if the behaviour listed there is one settled view or settled practice. So, with that as a background, how should more members of the General Synod who claim to follow Christ work out what he has to say on the issue of same-sex marriage or really any matter? Well, we look at the Gospels, we look at Jesus, what does he have to say about it? In Matthew, Mark and Luke, he quotes and endorses God's definition of marriage, Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It is a man and his wife. It's monogamous. One man, one wife. It is heterosexual, man and wife. It is committed, united, literally means in Hebrew to be glued to. So permanence is implied, although in the Gospels, Matthew 19, and in the Epistles, 1 Corinthians 7, there are exceptions for the innocent party to adultery or desertion. It is public. We leave one primary relationship, which is to our parents, and we adopt a new primary relationship with our spouse. And it is physical. The one flesh is an expression for sexual intercourse. So marriage is monogamous, heterosexual, permanent, public, and has a physical expression, 
which is intended only to be expressed in this sexual union. Now, such a definition rules out loads of other things. It rules out all premarital and extramarital expression. So, no polygamy, one man and many wives. No polyandry, one wife and many husbands. No fornication or premarital expression. No adultery or extramarital expression. No same-sex expression, it's heterosexual. Now, we may have to, in working out, being clear about God's definition made before the fall, endorsed by Jesus, we may need to sort of spell out what that definition excludes. But we should put our energy into promoting positively what it does mean. Positive for those who are married, heterosexually, and positively for those who are single and chaste. Glenn Harrison, in his latest book, for those of you who, um, who don't know him, Glenn is um, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Bristol University. He's been here a couple of times. In his latest book called um, A Better Story, um, he stresses the need for us to use our better story as a contemporary narrative to the kind of sexual revolution that's gone on for 50, 60 years, and how chaotic and disastrous that has been. So he says, what if we remembered that we flourish when we live in harmony with God's design, and left behind the broken promises of the sexual revolution to tell a better story of our own? We all know from experience, and if we read research papers galore, um, we know that the maker's results uh, bring about the best outcomes. To think we know better is a bucket load of grief. And we could spend the day sharing uh, our knowledge and observation of where that has been true. In following our maker, we learn something of his relationship with us. And it is certainly best for the next generation. So as we close, the way we discover what is true and false, right and wrong, wise and foolish, is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus in his intellectual recognition of the authority of Scripture, in his volitional desire to obey it, both of which result in the emotional consequence of knowing the peace of God that comes from knowing that we do his will. I think if we claim to follow Christ, I can't see how we can do anything else than to follow him in his regard to scripture and its consequences. Let us pray. a prayer that's often used on the uh, second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, 
we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>